to Fourth of July is ago. Fourth uh, of July, twenty nineteen. I was in Ireland. Kaylee, I'm fairly certain that Robert will uh, agree with my assessment here because we were a bunch of Americans spending the Fourth of July in Ireland with one Irish dude, Paul. I don't know if he listens to the podcast. We're friends on Facebook, so he must see me promote it every once in a while. But so, like, it's not really fun to be American overseas on the 4th of July unless you're like being really obnoxious about it but I said to him you know the main message of the 4th of July in America is England get fucked and I think the Irish can really get behind that this modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Lexi, red, white, or blue? Blue. I was going to say, there's a correct answer there, and you got it. It's blue. And Haley, hot dogs or hamburgers? I'm going to go with a cheeseburger. A cheeseburger of caramelized onions. (sighs) Fuck yes. You know know I fucks with caramelized onions and cheeseburgers. I really like caramelized onions. Oh, so good. And I'm Alana, and egregious displays of patriotism make me nervous. And that's on intergenerational trauma. The 4th of July is my least favorite holiday. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fireworks suck. Fireworks just gonna, do suck. I'm going to hit you all with this, dear listeners. That's I don't want to lose you as a listener, but hot take fireworks do indeed suck. They're meaningless. Whatever patriotic fantasy you have about them, I don't get. Uh, All they do is scare animals and, in fact, cause environmental damage. So to those guys who won't stop setting off fireworks every Saturday of the whole summer outside of my parents' house, you suck. And my dog hates you. I also hate you. Anything that, like, there's some dogs who, like, love it or, like, who don't really mind it. And then there are some who, like, get totally disastrous. So you know how like 4th of July has like a lot of clothing suspiciously attached to the holiday? At Old Navy next time? Exactly. So like, do y'all like get dressed up for 4th of July? Because I feel like I wear like a red or white or blue. Wearing the American flag pattern on anything on your body is technically a desecration of the flag and that's on that's Girl where Scouts i was going for that because i was like um, i do wear maybe like one or two of the colors but like that yeah, was if where you want to wear navy blue yep i remember no. having the because old navy puts out like a t-shirt every year <laughs> the annual yep. shirt fourth of july annual shirt and all i remember is getting the 2004 one from one of my cousins one of my older cousins maybe it was sarah sarah listens to the show what's up sarah and it was like a hand-me-down. The 2004 Old Navy 4th of July shirt was a hand-me-down. All right, I went down to camp along with Captain Good. And there we saw the men and boys as thick as hasty could. Yankee Doodle, keep it up. Yankee Doodle, guarantee. Find the music and the step and with the girls be handy. And there was General Washington upon a slapping stallion. I'm giving orders to his men, I guess there was a million. Yankee Doodle, keep it up. Yankee Doodle, guy.
saying I'm absolutely not going to mention Hamilton the musical. I believe someone else in this Zoom call will talk about it, but I don't want to talk about it. And I just want these ladies to be able to have their own story that is unrelated to a fictional musical. I want them to be able to live in their reality. So that's what I'm going to do. Because because. I guess the one thing I'll say is I believe that Hamilton the musical is a fictional story as we should all see it as. And so I think this ladies, these ladies, there are multiple ladies, their story should exist separate of that. So since I'm covering three ladies today, I'm not going to go super into detail about each individual one, but maybe one day they can be revisited as individuals on another episode. Anyway, I just wanted to warn you to not be salty if you think like I missed important details because I was not trying to make this the longest story we've ever had on the show. I don't want to repeat of episode one where we talked for hours and hours and it (laughs) was a disaster. Learning curve. So as you may have guessed, or maybe not, but maybe you have guessed because I'm talking about three ladies and I gave a warning about Hamilton the musical, which again, not going to mention after this. You may know that I am going to talk about the Schuyler sisters, the three eldest daughters of Philip Schuyler, who was a general for the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Philip actually had two other daughters who survived to adulthood, Cornelia and Catherine. But because Cornelia and Catherine are 20 and 25 years younger, uh, respectively, than their oldest sister, I think they kind of sit in their own category that's better suited to like a post-revolution America story. And since our episode today is focusing on the founding of America, I don't think their stories quite fit into that since they were tiny kiddos when a lot of this was going down. Also, like they didn't grow up with their three oldest sisters in the home. Their three oldest sisters had already moved out. So they probably weren't that close. No tea, no shade. No Boston Tea Party, no shade. They they probably had like nieces and nephews who were older than them by that point. They absolutely unequivocally most certainly did. So yeah, they, Cornelia and Catherine, the underrated Skyler sisters, unfortunately are not getting explored here, but we will maybe get to them someday because I do think it's interesting that they they don't get any clout because they never married anyone with clout, <laughs> whereas their three older sisters got clout through marriage. Clout by association. You know, they got to be Alexander Hamilton's sister-in-law too. Like, where's their clout? <laughs> so anyway, Philip Schuyler had three eldest daughters. They were Angelica, Elizabeth, and Margarita. And Margarita was known to the family as Peggy. But why would you go by Peggy if your name was Margarita? I have no clue. Marg, Margie, Maggie. It's historically like Peggy is a nickname for Margaret or Marguerite or... That's weird. Whatever. Also, if your name is Margarita, live with it. Like, live it up. Like, Shout out to Margarita, <laughs> uh, my older sister type figure who listens to the podcast but very delayed and also she just got married like a wow. month ago however um, I to know my cousin fact. so that's even better Friends i know the margarita wasn't invented until the 1940s that was not a thing like the well, drink margarita yeah no 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 but my friend not. margarita is not named after a margarita she's named after the russian word for marigold which is margarita there's oh, a bug cool. in my apartment so, yes, I guess technically she wouldn't have known that Margarita is a cool word. So maybe that whatever. But her name's Margarita. I guess a lot of people don't know that because whatever. But her name's Margarita. Angelica was born first in February of 1756. Elizabeth followed in August 1757. 
Then Margarita was born in September 1758. So these three sisters were really, really close in age. And they were all born in Albany, New York, into a family of wealthy Dutch landowners. And it's likely that their primary form of communication as a family in the home was actually Dutch. So I think a lot of times we think about only English in early America, but we have to remember that there were huge populations of different ethnic groups that spoke different languages, including Dutch. That's the language that Angelica, Elizabeth, and Margarita probably spoke with each other when they were growing up. Also, if you didn't notice, the years that they were born mean that they were like the dopest age you could be during the revolution, like early 20s, living it up. So that's pretty cool. Cool time to live, I guess. Probably scary, but probably pretty cool. I mean, probably not that scary if you're like a rich white lady, but like pretty cool. Both their mother, Catherine, and their father, Philip, came from landowning families who had been prominent members of the colonies with strong political influence for four generations. So they were not new to America. They had been there for a long time. And of course, this meant that both sides of their families enslaved people. More on this later. But content warning for the rest of the story, there will be mentions of slavery. So obviously, these three had a pretty cushy childhood and never wanted for much of anything, but also they were growing up as tensions in the colonies were rising and many colonists were not happy with Britain and like its whole thing. So that's a whole other history class that we don't have time for, but I will have Haley put some crash course links in the YouTube playlist this week that are actually from the crash course I used to study for A-Push way back in the day. So they hold up, I guess. That's we, are, we are huge crash course stands here. Yeah, they're um, on like every playlist. <laughs> I I also basically, spoiler alert, I also have crash course in my sources. It's, a different one, but I do have crash it's, course in my it's sources. It's useful. It's useful. If you want context on that, especially if you're not American. I know, you know, if you're not American, you probably don't know a lot of this in depth. So pause this, go watch that for some background, and then come back. I'm going to talk about each of the sisters' adult lives separately, but the stories intertwine, so I hope it isn't too confusing, but this is the best way I can figure out to talk about three people who, like, have their own lives, but also, of course, have things happen to each other. You know what I mean, so bear with me. In 1777, Angelica eloped with a man named John Barker Church. The couple moved to Europe in 1783 and stayed there for 16 years, basically missing all the tea, <laughs> pun. Uh, in the young years of the United States, and they had eight children together, and Church actually served in the British Parliament. So I find this very fascinating since her dad was a general in the Continental Army, and she married this guy who was obviously very into the Brit-ish. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean. And while her husband served in this role, she became friends with many elite Europeans, including the royal family of England. Angelica also nurtured friendships with American, quote, royalty, unquote, like her brother-in-law, Alexander Hamilton, French Revolutionary Lafayette, and President Thomas Jefferson. She and Jefferson met in Paris while both living abroad there, you know, two Americans abroad in Paris. Ugh. Scholars debate whether she and Jefferson had a platonic friendship or a flirtatious one. And I want to just put out my theory since I didn't see my theory anywhere. No other historian has ever proposed this theory, so I'm the first to propose this theory as far as I can tell. He's just a creepy old dude who refused to not say creepy shit to young ladies he was talking to. This is confirmed by all the other creepy shit he definitely did. So your answer to anything relating to Thomas Jefferson is he's a creepy old dude. That's it. That's all. Creepy old racist. Creepy old racist, racist man. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. That's all he is. Yeah. So like, of course, he said weird shit. Like, let me kiss your hands in his letters. Like, cause he's a creep. 
The distance from her home was far, but Angelica did visit her family in the United States, despite the taxing nature of the trip sailing across the ocean. In 1789, she traveled to America and attended Washington's inauguration. She was invited as like a prominent member of American society. The family returned to America in 1797 when Church had been given 100,000 acres of land in Western New York. Clause to this, who had the right to give that to him? It was indigenous peoples first. Just another clause to put in there. So this land is actually now the town of Angelica, New York. And the layout of the city is said to be inspired by Paris and was designed by Angelica's son, Philip. And she passed away in 1814 at the age of just 58. She didn't live very long, but she does have a town named after her that supposedly looks like Paris. I've never been to Angelica, New York. I've never been to Paris. Can't give you a comparison. In 1780, so we're going back in time a little bit, Elizabeth married Alexander Hamilton, who if you haven't heard of him, there'll be a crash course on that. That's a whole other story. This is an immense history podcast, whatever. Um, As Cece, aka Lexi said, this is not dude history. This is not dude history. It's lady history. (laughs) Throwback to our April Fool's episode. Yes, yes. So she met Alexander Hamilton while visiting her aunt in New Jersey. Love Jersey. It was also during this trip that she became close friends with Martha Washington, who was like her senior by quite a bit, but like they still became like bros. Um, And I guess that kind of worked out in her favor since she wanted to marry Alexander Hamilton and like he was chill with GW and like, you know, Elizabeth was the only of the three eldest Schuyler sisters to marry with her father's blessing as both Angelica and Margarita eloped without their father's approval. After their marriage, happened. Elizabeth's father entrusted her husband with the management of the sale and purchase of individuals enslaved by the Schuyler family. Though some historians have tried to argue that Alexander's rough upbringing made him an abolitionist, others note that his desire to become a member of the American elite necessitated his involvement in the practice of slavery. Quite frankly, I think this is a dumb debate for scholars to have because he did indeed, in fact, manage the sale of people, and that is disgusting. So I do not think he uh, gets to say whatever, and he you know, whatever he claims to feel about the matters doesn't really matter at all. Basically, her man's married her to get rich quick and had no qualms about her father's ways of making money. I think that tells you all you need to know about their relationship. I could dive deeper into this, but like I said, women's history podcast. So for the sake of that, that's all you need to know that her husband was a bit of a scummy poo-poo who probably only married her to get rich. And also, Since it is a women's history podcast, we need to acknowledge that Elizabeth, as well as her sisters Angelica and Margarita, enabled and participated in a system of buying, selling, and owning people against their will. So no matter what we say about them, they still still suck. So that's that's it. Elizabeth's primary role um, as the wife of a politician was one of a socialite, so she maintained relationships with many of early American elite families. In 1797, Elizabeth heard rumors that her husband was cheating on her which she at first did not believe. And when she finally realized it was true and her husband went public with the information about his affair, their relationship became strained. He died two years later from injuries sustained during a duel with fellow politician Aaron Burr. Though the couple was only married for 24 years, they had eight children who survived to adulthood. Two of them were named Philip, and they also had a cousin named Philip, who was their Aunt Angelica's son. And yet again, this is like the Anna Roosevelt thing. Like, please, can we get some more name originality? Thank you. Also, Elizabeth named one of her sons John Church after Angelica's husband. One was named after her sister, and one was named after herself. Like, okay, this is white culture. This is it. If someone asks me what white culture is, apparently this is it. After her husband passed away, Elizabeth took up her own passions and became a philanthropist. 
She was the co-founder of an organization called Orphan Asylum, which worked to provide housing for orphaned American children. And she served as directress, which is apparently the feminine form of director, which is archaic and no longer used, but that's the term that she was. Of it's the, the same, um, it's because it's the same route from like aviatrix. Ah, that one I kind of like, but I don't love directress. It kind of sounds like a mistress. But yeah, that's what she did for the remainder of her time in New York City. She was directress of Orphan Asylum. and. Eventually, she moved to Washington, D.C., like kind of as retirement to live with her daughter who had been widowed so that they could like have family be together. And she and her son, John, worked to sort and archive Alexander's papers, which were used to publish his biography. She died in November 1854 at the age of 97, which is crazy and amazing. Congrats for making it to 97. She outlived all of her siblings except the youngest, who was 24 years younger than her, Catherine. So, wow, pretty, pretty spicy. Margarita, there's not as much about her. I think she, like, got the least clout out of all the sisters. So, her story short. Peggy, she married Stephen Van Rensselaer III, who was six years her junior and her distant cousin on her mother's side. I'm not sure how distant of a cousin, but they were indeed some sort of cousin. And she made the decision to elope because she felt her father would disapprove of the age gap in their relationship. Peggy had three children, but only one survived to adulthood. And in 1799, Peggy fell ill and she passed away at the age of 42 in 1801. But um, Elizabeth heard about this from a letter that she got from her husband and it was very devastating for her. So Elizabeth went through a lot of shit. That's it. That's my story of the Schuyler sisters. <laughs> Pretty scummy, horrible whole situation classic white lady in the olden time shit and there is so much to unpack there in general And now who's ready for another accidental spy story? Another one. I apologize. No, I know it's about, fine. Everybody uh, loves spies. It's Lydia Dare, who is a Philadelphia Quaker from Ireland. So like, or Ireland coming at you. Who became a Patriot spy during the American Revolution. But before we get into the juicy nuggets of storytelling, a huge shout out to the National Women's History Museum for the fabulous articles that have earned their rightful place in the show notes. Lydia was born in Dublin, Ireland, but moved to Philadelphia after marrying William Dare, and they settled down within Philly's large Quaker community where William was a tutor. Lydia was a midwife slash nurse. Now the Quakers in general, like in a very general sense, were neutral during the Revolutionary War because within the Quaker sect of Christianity, war and fighting is seen as an unforgivable action and they were like pacifists however that's not to say all quakers like lydia who is secretly patriot spy and supported what they called the rebel cause so skipping over a lot of revolutionary history cough cough look at the playlist i made for you all that has a lot of hank and john talking about this to the part where British General Sir William Howe settled his camp across Lydia's house, 
post some victories over Washington's army. So they weren't doing the greatest. And this arrangement gave Lydia the perfect view to spy. And I'm thinking of like the peering around the court, like curtains and like the corner of her house. Maybe she's like doing some gardening, seeing if some British soldier catches her eye, just picks up like that house cat, some knitting, a cup of tea and just like, oh yeah, look, I was looking for this. So yeah, like, see, just doing knitting lady things, not staring at you. Silly me looking out a window. I never knew I could do that. Just like really playing up the, what they probably thought of woman at the time. But also I could see her having like a great distraction bit ready because her 14 year old son, John would smuggle like coded notes about what the British were doing and give them to her and or her other son, Charles, who was a Patriot soldier. So we have many layers to this fantastic onion. And Already badass family, but now we've fallen to the years of 1777, where the British troops, by demanding, uh, were using Lydia's home for meetings. So this poor move by the British, of course, Lydia was like, no, I'm still going to stay in the house. Like, I'll be in my bedroom. And she would hide in a closet where she found out that they could like she could hear them from the closet, like sweet, sweet acoustics were working in her favor. And she found out they had plans to attack Washington's army at White Marsh on December 4th. So of course, now out of the closet, she set out to tell Washington and left her house. Like I just processed the out of the closet joking on. <laughs> My brain needed a second for that one. <laughs> I was trying really hard not to smile and go over so smoothly. So, of course, now out of the closet, she set out to tell Washington and left the house under the guise of visiting her youngest children. Side note, they were sent to live with relatives when the British started occupying her home, the smart mama bear she is, and to get flour. So she was coming back, like, doing groceries and, like, making it so less suspicious. And she did get the flour to get past, like, the patrol stops and also, like, possibly it was next to her. One of our humans that she needed to like sneaky, sneaky pass along her note. And she didn't look suspicious enough for them to stop her, but she got the word to her daughter, Anne, who then told an American officer who then passed it on like a game of telephone, which didn't include Lydia. So we don't really like care. What does include Lydia is another count of this like tidbit of a moment that we call the American Revolution that was told by a British soldier. So he claimed that Lydia passed this information along via a needle book, which had a lot of pockets. So these books, like you could hide, you essentially could hide stuff because they had pockets to keep whatever you needed to do, needlepoint, cross stitch and sewing. So one of the, uh, one of the pockets included a message detailing the surprise attack. And that's V clever. I'm just gonna say it out there. Like that's in the back of my head if I have to be really sneaky and send stuff. Like put in a book of knitting or like if I'm sending something to Lexi, of course, in between the embroidery hoop, like scrawled out. That's lady spy shit. Yeah. Regardless, Lydia giving the warning allowed Washington's army to prepare and that attack ended in a standoff. Now, I couldn't find a copy, but apparently her daughter, Anne, 
maybe another badass that we do another story on was the one who helped publish like she helped or like wrote more supplemented published stories of her mother's spy work and like help keep her legacy alive so she could be remembered as like the true badass revolutionary spy she was that's Lydia I'm kind of obsessed with her I'm obsessed with spies too tell my story now and this story has a content warning for slavery kidnapping and human trafficking because that is literally what enslavement was uh and also i'm gonna say things like enslaved instead of slave because that is the human-centered phrasing and literally just go google it like researching for this story got me so riled up that i'm just like go educate yourselves go watch crash course black american history it's educational without being condescending and it's one of my primary sources for this story and the day after this episode comes out on july 2nd they're talking about black americans in the american revolution so go watch that tomorrow or immediately after listening to this episode if you are listening after the release date i'm excited for it it's going to be very helpful to the rant that i'm going to go on later which also might be patreon content we'll see So Phyllis Wheatley was born circa 1753 in what is now the country of Gambia, but at the time uh, it was just called the Gambia River region. Even now, Gambia is just like this tiny little country that basically just consists of the Gambia River and the immediate banks. I have a friend from there. Cool. It's basically just the Gambia River and the immediate banks, just like totally surrounded by Senegal. But this is not a lecture on African geography. That's a different podcast. And she was taken captive when she was around seven or eight and brought to the Americas on a ship called the Phyllis. And that is literally where her English name came from. And I think that is extremely fucked up. I know they gave all the captured and enslaved Africans English names, but I think that one is particularly harsh. Anyways, she arrived in Boston in 1761 and a couple named Wheatley, who purchased her, had lost a daughter nine years before that. And a lot of historians believed that or they still believe that phyllis was kind of a surrogate daughter for them which is also fucked up uh so they taught her to read and write and she definitely got some special treatment but also she was literally still enslaved and it was incredibly rare for enslaved people to have the exposure she had to things like philosophy and classical literature and she wrote in one of her first poems that she really wanted a more academic environment probably not totally unrelated to the fact that she was you know enslaved Even as a teenager, she became fluent and eloquent enough to write a beautiful eulogy of a neighbor and published her first poem in 1767 when she was somewhere around 14 and she published uh, under a pen name. Phyllis was inspired by the rise of Methodist Christianity in the Americas and the Great Awakening, which is another Christian movement from around this time. Uh, with an emphasis on conversion and spiritual rebirth and that whole Jesus as a personal savior thing. And to the point that one of her greatest influences was a Methodist Anglican pastor named George Whitefield. Uh, And when George Whitefield died in 1770, Phyllis published kind of a poetic eulogy of him that was a huge, massive, incredible success. And then this is when her writing took off. In 1773, she traveled to England with the Wheatley's son, 
uh, I'm guessing as like a chaperone so that she wouldn't run away, uh, and published 39 of her poems in a book called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. And she was the first English speaking black person to publish a book and only the second woman in America. And there was a lot of uh, publicity around her arrival to England for people to be like, look, a real live black woman actually wrote this. Incredible. More at 11. This massive success kind of earned her her freedom and she was emancipated from the Wheatleys somewhere around 1774. She supported the American Revolution. This this story is really only tangentially related to the American Revolution, but we were originally, when I looked at this list, this was a bunch of white women and more on that later. And I was uncomfortable with that and more on that later. Uh, she supported the American Revolution and even wrote a kind of letter slash poem praising George Washington. And then George Washington invited her to go visit him, saying that he would be, quote, happy to see a person so favored by the muses. Uh, and Phyllis absolutely 100% supported the American Revolution, as I said. However, she believed that slavery was the primary obstacle in the American fight for freedom, kind of duh. Um, and she even compared Christian slave owners to like the biblical Egyptians in a poem, of course. And then the criticism aspect of that was like, look, you fuckers, you're like pagans, the worst of the people. You know who else owns, owns slaves? Pagans. Anyways, that's that on that. In 1778, Phyllis married John Peters, a freed black man who was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but like if jack-of-all-trades meant bad at a bunch of things. And, <laughs> and I'm just like looking at Lexi losing her shit. But John was like constantly in and out of debt. And the couple had three children who all died young. And then Phyllis spent the rest of her life trying to publish a second book of poetry, but like couldn't do that. Phyllis Wheatley died December 5th, 1784 due to complications from childbirth. And then that baby also died and John Peters was sent to a debtor's prison, which is such a weird concept to me, but that's not related. And Phyllis was the poster child for abolitionists to be like, look, black enslaved people are eloquent and intellectual. This had been known earlier to black people. And that phrasing is a reference, this is kind of off topic, off topic but that phrasing is a reference to my favorite etymology dictionary entry for the word clitoris and it's like this male anatomist claimed to have discovered the clitoris and named it this because blibbity blue blah and then the entry ends it had been known earlier to women which is it's just the comedic timing but in an etymology dictionary anyways and with further reference to phyllis wheatley's legacy here is my rant against hamilton sign up for the patreon to hear the rest of it if it ends up being too long to go here i hate the musical hamilton and I'm sorry, Lexi, and sorry, Mom, and sorry to any other listeners who are still Hamilton stands. But you know what? Toni Morrison also hates Hamilton. And how often has Toni Morrison been wrong? All Cause... right. So, like, I've entered the chat. One, <laughs> I think, because I did not have the money nor patience to come from D.C. to New York when my parents and also just the times that, like, tickets were available. So I only saw it on... Disney Plus, and maybe it's different, but as a person who struggles with focusing on one thing, having a stage move, then people move, and then the camera move. I love that that's your primary concern. <laughs> that's the least spiciest. Here's the spicy. Most lukewarm take. It's, it's like, it's as lukewarm of my water right now. And this water had ice when we first started recording. 
But my thing is, is like, I understand there's a lot of stuff to put in Hamilton. But if your whole thing is that I'm going to make like the people of color, the white people, because like they wouldn't have thought that the black people should be involved in that room, but not talk about slavery. I am going to get to this. Really Basically this exact point that you are saying there, Haley. And I feel like. Hold okay, that now that we're talking about it, so the sentiment of like, I don't think that's brought up enough because Lin-Manuel Miranda in one interview was like, yeah, like I mentioned it like once or twice. Literally one such time. A big like two times, topic two times. that already the show is so long and it's like, all right, you wanted to rap in a fun outfit. Just, That's, just say that you wanted to rap in a fun outfit. Just say and that we yet would... again, you wanted to cast yourself as the lead in something. I was Alexander Hamilton. Basically, in summary, where is my Phyllis Wheatley musical or Crispus Attucks or the thousands of other Black people and people of color whose names I don't know because they have been systematically excluded from the narrative? You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at LadyHistoryPod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode and our merch will be on LadyHistoryPod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. And Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History. We're super spots! Check out our Instagram reels and TikTok for all our variations of that audio and applaud my high-pitched voice. Next week's episode is about spies. I feel like that wasn't clear. Next week we're talking about spies. We love spies. I said super spies. I'm yes, literally yes, saying like, super spies. To be clear. Not- <laughs>